Welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast for film fans by film fans. Every episode, we look at films old and new to choose what should be preserved for all time in our movie vault. With lively topics, big questions, and crazy challenges to entertain us and our guests, we always look to have fun by giving you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching, even if there are some duds along the way. But don't just take my word for it. Here's a preview of what to expect in today's episode. Because if you look at it in like the order of like the actual uh, trilogy, well, for a while trilogy that we get, it's surprising that this wasn't like the culmination. Like the fact that this is the second film in the trilogy just seems a bit bizarre. Because obviously if they just go, okay, so the first film is setting things up, the second film is completely changing every way that we view an entire series <laughs> of films. The third, the third one's a sequel. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast that gives you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching. I'm your host, David Osger, and once again, I'm joined by my co-host, he's the juggernaut, bitch. <laughs> it is Craig McDonald. Hello, Craig. I think that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> Compare me to Vinnie Jones. Exactly. Just Vinnie Jones is the way to your heart. I mean, obvi- obviously, like... I'd like that last comment censored ever so slightly, but yeah, no, fine. I'm I'm more than happy to be a uh, to be a guy who plays like a football hooligan in uh, Euro Trip. Sounds great. I was also just thinking of uh, the meme that spawned from the films we've been talking about today, in which it would just be me as Magneto, like show me the real Craig McDonald, and then <laughs> just you turning into one of the many personas that we we compare you to on this podcast. So eventually, we just get to this, and it's just perfection. Yeah, you just turn into the dinosaur from the Playmobil movie, Perfection. Oh, God. Before we start today, Craig, I have to mention this film as we dedicated an episode to it, uh, well, its previous installments, and we have now seen the newer version. So for the people at home, what did you think of the new Mortal Kombat, considering you hated the other ones so much? It had a single promise to obtain, which is uh, to uh, uphold even. Which is, it is, uh, are they better than the 90s films? Yes. Yes, it is better than the 90s films. Is it a, like, perfect, great film? No. There's definitely a, a lot of how I have issue with. There was a lot that basically just parrots from the 90s versions, including the very, hey, this is an entire film about a tournament. Let's make the entire plot trying to avoid the tournament. Stop doing that! Just play the damn thing out. Very true. Uh, yeah, it, it just continues to astound me how they just cannot adapt these franchises. But today we are talking about uh, mutants within the X-Men movies. Uh, we're going to be talking about the X-Men Beginnings trilogy, as it's often referred to, as we previously talked about the initial trilogy of films that came out back in like the early 2000s. And when we discussed those films, we discussed it with our good friend and comic book expert, jake hart so he's once again here joining us hello jake how are you today elohim shen Mm -hmm. ra i've been called many lames over many lifetimes but now i just go by jake 
and I am very excited <laughs> to be back here to talk about my favorite Marvel heroes, the X-Men, and back with you guys. One year on from when I was last on, minus Craig's birthday, of course, from when we did the the original trilogy. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, and interestingly, that's why I wanted to sort of talk about Hugh, sort of bring you into this episode is how much has changed in terms of superhero films and media because last year while we spoke to you obviously that was in the midst of the pandemic and we were suffering a lot of withdrawals from superhero content but since it we've had so many weird and projects that we didn't think we would get you know we've had the likes of new mutants has finally come out you know, we've had Zack Snyder's Justice League, which we talked about previously when you were on our DC episode. We've had all these Disney Plus shows. So it's kind of changing a lot. And you're, you know, I you cover this a lot on Capes, Cows and Masks. You know, I'm, I'm often there with you covering this kind of stuff. Uh, but for the people at home, you know, what, what do you think about this last year of comic book media and how it's going to go forward now that we've had all of these long lost projects come out you know come to the surface and different takes different universes all that kind of stuff i think this is a gift to humanity because we've just spent the last 14 months deprived of socializing and being outside and going to the movies and just being with our friends and geeking over you know new content that comes out sorry martin scorsese but now it's like after this long wait it's just like here you go the floodgates have opened and it's just non-stop now like i was i th- was thinking like we have four mcu films coming out this year alone and we're already halfway like half of the year's already gone so we're getting four within the space of 6 months which is crazy so yeah I, for me as a nerd this is just ridiculously good because there's so much out there and so many different variety of stuff you know you have amazon doing stuff like invincible and the boys the mcu are doing their thing dc are doing their thing there's so much to choose from now and you know it's like my star wars analogy of like the buffet like there's just so much to pick and like if one thing's not for you that's fine i'm sure something else will come up for you that will like take all the boxes so yeah it's just a great time to be like a superhero fan a fan of pop culture and yeah, it's it's a gift to humanity. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think hopefully studios have learned their lesson in terms of giving the control to the creators, learning from the mistakes of the Snyder Cut. I know there's obviously a lot of bad blood over at Warner Brothers and it's something that, you know, you often quite talk about, talking about the news, especially over on Capes, Cows and Masks. So, you know, for everyone who wants to keep up with that kind of news and new trailers and everything, go check that out. It's, but, it's, a, it's a weekly thing, the drama at Warner Brothers, honestly. <laughs> yeah, and it, yes, it's just quite infuriating in some ways. It's basically just its own soap opera. <laughs> yeah, essentially. It is, yeah. <laughs> but also, I, I just hope that, you know, we still keep to the, the traditional cinematic route, which Marvel has very much said that they want to do. DC seems to be somewhat committed to, while also building up HBO Max. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting time for comic book properties and just to see how long it can withstand and you know like keep going i suppose in, in so many ways because there'll be so much of it so much of it out there but yeah I, I think that they should have learned their lessons from what's happened with the likes of the snyder cut but in terms of like new mutants i think that that unfortunately and weirdly was just like the last whimper of the fox uh, x-men universe which is a weird way to go out but we're going to be talking probably more about in their prime, I guess, especially as a 
cinematic universe because the first three films were very much just traditional films that were all sequels to each other. They started to, to branch off, but it was mainly focused on Wolverine. And while these films still haven't done the Marvel formula of giving all these different characters their own solo films, it's very much in a post-Avengers kind of movie world in which these films are made and how, how they come across in terms of the characters that they're using and the stories that they are telling. So because X-Men First Class is celebrating uh, its 10th anniversary as it came out on the 3rd of June 2011 over in the US, uh, we thought what better time now to pick up from where last year we talked about the original trilogy and to talk about the Beginnings trilogy, uh, talking about X-Men First Class, X-Men Days of Future Past and X-Men Apocalypse. So yeah, we'll start off by talking about uh, X-Men First Class. So we'll start off now with a clip from the movie. We should think of code names. We're government agents now. We should have secret code names. I want to be called Mystique. Damn, I wanted to be called Mystique. <laughs> well, tough. I called it. Whoa! Whoa. <laughs> I'm way more mysterious than you. Whoa! <laughs> Darwin, what about you? Well, uh, Darwin's already a nickname, and you know, sort of fits. Adapt to survive and all. I'm going to be. Banshee. Why do you want to be named after a wailing spirit? You might want to cover your ears. <laughs> your turn. My uh, stage name is Angel. <whistles> kind of fits. You can fly? Uh-huh. And, um... <laughs> yep, some statue destroying fun there with X-Men First Class. Kicking it all off at the very beginning, seeing Charles Xavier and uh, Eric Lenscher. Uh, I've never said that surname before in my life. <laughs> to me, he is just Magneto or Eric. Uh, I apologize. Uh, but seeing their early days where they're actually friends teaming, uh, teaming up with, um, with the CIA... Uh, trying to prevent um, nuclear war falling out in the time of the Cold War. Uh, so this was directed by Matthew Vaughan with story by uh, Sheldon Turner and Brian Singer, obviously of uh, the original trilogy fame, uh, and starring a brand new cast. So we get to see all of our favorite X-Men uh, recast as younger versions. So you have James McAvoy as Professor X. You have Michael Fassbender as Magneto. You have Jennifer Lawrence as Raven or Mystique. Uh, you have Nicholas Holt as uh, as Beast or Hank McCoy, um, but then you will, um, but then you also have as the villain of all people, Kevin Bacon as Sebastian Shaw. Uh, we're also uh, playing uh, Moira from the CIA, Rose uh, Roseburn. So, how do we feel about it? Where should we start? Yeah, well, I really like this movie. I think it's a colorful, smart well-staged blockbuster it you know it makes really good use of the period style of the 60s uh, when i first heard that fox were doing this and going back to the 60s i was really intrigued because i thought oh that's you know the era that the x-men originated from and i also like that it, you know it refocuses the series on its f philosophical and social origins because like the last couple of films like 
The Last Stand and X-Men Origins Wolverine, they trailed off a bit and did some weird stuff that generally the fans weren't really happy with. So I liked that it sort of put the focus back on what makes the X-Men really interesting. And I also thought Matthew Vaughn was did a great job directing. Like I thought he was really taken with like the period aspects of the film, like taking place in 1962, was it? Uh, and then he's like using the he uses the Cuban Missile Crisis as like the backdrop of the film. So I thought, oh, that's really really cool. And then I also really liked that he viewed the film as like an X Men crossed with like an early James Bond style style of film. Like he filled the film with really stylish costumes the attitude and also a lot of direct references to like 60s filmmaking like a lot of like the film was filmed in 60s style with like a lot of traditional framing and like toned down camera movements and editing like it didn't really it was sort of very stagnant a lot of places and uh, basic but I also really like that it's built around the relationship between Eric and Charles and expands on basically the debate that they have in the original trilogy but we get to see sort of where that all sort of originates from although i do think there is something that does bug me about this film is that you can clearly see that matthew vaughn wanted to completely reboot the franchise while fox wanted to somehow connect it to the films that they originally did and make it like a sort of prequel and i think you can see that in some of the direction and some of like the use of characters and story elements like the opening scene is nearly straight up shot for shot of the opening scene in the first X-Men film with, you know, um, younger Eric Lencher in the in Auschwitz and stuff like that. So, and I, I think I was doing some research and I saw that Matthew Vaughn, like, didn't really want to do that. He wanted to completely revamp these characters and take them in a new direction. So it's interesting to see what he would have done, uh, free reign, but at the same time, it makes sense from a studio perspective because at this time as well, in 2011, the MCU uh, was full in gear. You know, we were one year away from the Avengers. They were starting to tie up all these films. So I can understand why Fox would want to go, hey, let's do a prequels to the films we did and make them connect somehow. Even though they actually shot themselves in the foot with the continuity as we'll get on to later with Days of Future Past. Yeah, I think I think ultimately, like hearing that, I think it came off for the better because... While at that time as well, reboots and prequels were quite a common thing within Hollywood, which they still are today, but there was a lot of that, you know, especially with Spider-Man, etc. Batman, you know, very much this kind of, let's go back to the basics, let's completely change these characters. And when I remember first seeing the photos of First Class and thinking, oh, like this looks completely different. This doesn't look like at all like the old X-Men films and as somebody who grew up with those there was a bit of hesitancy from that and kind of looking at it like well who's who are these guys you know why is Mystique here why is she in like an X-Men outfit you know who's this Moira woman etc so I think ultimately at the time especially it I think Days of Future Past has helped and Apocalypse to tie that all more in but it also seemed a bit like they were happy to leave it as kind of like a light prequel because they depending on how it was received they could still go off on their own tangent and not have to be too loyal to the to the original films at the same time so they could kind of see see how things went which which is almost how 
how the, the making of the other films went as well, is that they were very much like, oh, well, we can use this time travel story to rewrite the specific films that people didn't like, etc. So I think that that's interesting. But but like you, Jake, I, I've said before, like, I'm a massive fan of Matthew Vaughan. I think that he adds a lot of style and a lot of flair to every project that he does. So I, I really appreciate the sort of 60s vibe and they very much went with that as well. They were like, oh, let's put this film in the 70s and the 80s. And so they wanted to make that like a unique aspect of each movie, which I think is fun. And I think that it gives you that power to play with genre as that's been successful with the likes of the MCU as well of saying, well, we're going to have these different types of movies play out within a superhero world. So yeah, I, I also really like the sort of secret agent aesthetic, the 60s, how they're using real world events. That's something that's very much my jam. I really like when stories are able to do that, when they're able to take like a real world event and sort of flip it or put a fantasy science fiction element into it. So it still has that sort of grounded realism, but they can show how these characters can work within a real life situation. And I think something like the Cuban Missile Crisis is perfect because one, it shows at a time in which the world was very scared of different forces and communism and all that kind of stuff. But there was also the conversation around nuclear weapons and the fact that mutants are born from like radiation. It just all makes sense to the villains' plans and, you know, how Magneto comes into the fray, etc. So why I really appreciate it here as well is that they really focused, as you said, Jake, on charles and eric's relationship and i remember at the time as well there was talks of oh there's going to be a magneto origin film and there's going to be uh you know the the wolverine one which we we did get and it kind of seemed like they folded that magneto story into this which i was much more of a fan of because i never thought the magneto would really work as a prequel film and it very much still is his film like the the main theme the music theme of of the movie is his theme and yeah, it very much becomes about him and Charles, but I think anybody watching it would say that his story is the driving force throughout that story, but it does work because it means that Charles is there as somebody who would understandably become friends with him and be a strong person in his life because he helps him to overcome some of the feelings of grief he has and overcoming some of the struggles he has with his powers. And I think they, you know, expertly set up uh, the formation of the school, how they work together, how they went and recruited different students, how they see the world differently, especially in that scene where they're playing chess. So I think all of that was really important because when you then see it later play out in other films, if that was only done in like a matter of like two or three scenes, you wouldn't have got the the sense of history and drama that you would have needed to get the emotional moments that come later on in this film and and in the subsequent ones. Another thing I'll say as well is that I've always said that as much as I like the Fox X-Men films, not all of them, you know, but I still don't consider them X-Men films. Like I've always said Fox don't make X-Men films, they make mutant films because they've never quite gotten to the core in my personal opinion, of who the X-Men are from the comics, the original source material. But I will say that I think First Class gets it the closest it's ever gotten. So is that just about the idea of like actually watching the uh, watching the X-Men bonding with each other and training together and like getting to the idea of their char- uh, characters? Yeah. 
Yeah, and all the thematic ideas and stuff like that. Like the original t- trilogy touches upon it, but it's, you know, and sort of naughty style of filmmaking. They try to center it like an action film and follow like Wolverine's journey, which really isn't what the X-Men is about. And I understand at the time that's what you have to do. But I still think they've never truly made an X-Men film, which is why we'll talk about later why I'm very excited when now that the MCU have got their hands on them. And also, like with the original trilogy, we all love Ian McKellen and Sir Patrick Stewart as Magneto and Charles Xavier. So it was a really tough sell going into this to think, how can you top those actors who were perfectly cast in those roles? And I think Fox absolutely nailed it with Fassbender and James McAvoy. Like, to perfectly cast these characters twice, that's almost unachievable, and I think they nailed it. So, fun fact about this film, this is the first X-Men film I ever saw. Oh, wow. So, going back to last, uh, last year's episode where I said um, I didn't watch any of, those, uh, any of those films as they came out, I only saw snippets of, like, Last Stand on TV, and it was literally for that episode was when I watched um, X-Men and X2 for the first time. Yeah, no, this is the film that started off uh, any relationship I had with X-Men for me. So I'm just going to say that's why it's always going to have like like a soft uh, like a soft spot in my heart. But yeah, no, I also I I also uh, love this film. I think there's just a lot I think there's just a lot about it which I get on board with. Um, I think the fact that we see specifically some of the scenarios that like we see eric in i just i love his sort of like manhunter stuff this uh the scene uh the scene in argentina in the bar is one of my favorite absolute favorite scenes especially where he's just talking uh he's just talking um to the men just being like oh my parents didn't have uh names they were taken away uh by pig farmers and tailors and just drinking beer with them and just watching these men just like okay what's happening um absolute peak tension and also just the just the scene at the end where magneto takes over the helmet and just the way they shot the way they shoot that scene as well i think is just uh just incredible um what what i also find interesting about this film is that wasn't the production history of this film like absolute hell like everything about it was just so rushed and suggested this film was going to be awful and then it wasn't yeah, I did uh, find out some information about it because Brian Singer was originally meant to direct this one, but then I'm not too sure exactly what happened, but he went on to do another project. And then they basically brought Matthew Vaughn in very last minute before they started shooting. But um, during production, apparently it was a very tight production. Like they started shooting in August of 2010, and then the yeah. film was released in May 2011, which is yeah. insane. Like it's... So close to a 12-month turnaround. And then, yeah, because I was watching, uh, I was watching a video about it, and they talked about it, and he just said, "So yeah, you'd think that they're going into this, and then when you also see some of the things they have to overcome, that it, the film is just going to bomb." And yet they manage to get so many of the elements, like just right. The fact that they get that chemistry between uh, Charles and Eric down very, very, uh, very, very quickly, even though the first time they meet is literally just swimming in the ocean, which tell any, which is one of my favorite facets of the film. But yeah, I also just think that the way they introduced the X, uh, like the concept of the X-Men was quite smart. So just not trying to bombard, but just taking lesser known X-Men and just sort of playing around with them a bit, right? Um, even if they do Darwin absolutely dirty. Yeah, I know um, I know there's a lot of people out there, especially 
you know, our friend uh, Tom Jake, which uh, is not a big fan of that. But apart from that, I think that that's something that I always enjoyed as well, is that they didn't go down the obvious route of, oh, let's, you know, see a, a young Cyclops and a young Jean Grey, which one wouldn't make sense at all for the timeline. So probably that's the main reason they didn't do it. Obviously, they put Havoc in there as a kind of similar character to but, Cyclops, who's literally related to him. But you know if they didn't give a damn, they would try and find some way of doing it, right? You, They would introduce yeah. them as, like, absolute children just being just something they would just find a way of squidging it up yeah uh and which they did again in x-men origins they were just like oh let's try and get cyclops in here for no reason whatsoever so yeah i always appreciated that they were kind of like a ragtag group of x-men as well and it kind of makes sense to the storyline that they're telling that they don't have these ultra powerful mutant characters it very much feels because of the the spy element of it it feels like this kind of kind of like almost like an oceans film or something especially because they when they're recruiting them they've got like not niles barkley playing which is very fun and fitting of the 60s setting but because all of those characters are kind of very like misfit rogue characters i think that it makes sense and fits the whole kind of on the ground nature and the the rookie element of them coming together building this school it's not in this kind of like idyllic way of being like yes i've got this massive like school with all this like fancy technology and they're doing all these like marvelous things that you would see in like an avengers film with this high-tech facility i kind of like that this kind of very on the ground you know when they're there training getting ready the way that they get banshee ready for battle is literally just throwing him out of a window (laughs) so it just feels very of that time and it just feels right in how you would set something up like that there doesn't immediately start off as this big organization and obviously they would need to build up to the whole a plane comes out of the basketball court uh, idea so i think that that works for it and and yeah i quite like the the x-men characters mystique is a bit shoehorned into this film and franchise as a whole again i can see the studio mentality of being like well you know it was magneto and mystique so we need to bring her in it was an opportunity to use jennifer lawrence who was a big star at that time but not really until days of future past came along did she really rise to stardom which we'll talk about later but it is kind of odd how she turns out to be charles's you know sister etc because there was just nothing ever in in the franchise previous about that so that's the most shoehorned aspect of it whereas when you watch magneto and charles we're not there going oh you didn't suggest they were friends before because obviously that's always been an element of of their relationships so where's the mystique stuff is kind of strange and like i said even when i saw the original poster and and the the teases of the film i was kind of like thought i was like is that mystique i was like why is she in this like yellow jumpsuit what's, what's going on here but i really like banshee i think that his power is always fun i don't know why i always like characters that have that uh so sonic scream and i think this played in a fun way so that he can use the sort of squirrel wings to, to, to fly around etc obviously you see beast comes in in quite an interesting way jennifer lawrence does get to use her powers in in quite effective ways i think probably then for the other mutants maybe the villain side has a few more interesting ones like azazel is quite interesting the powers of emma frost are quite cool not so sure about january jones in in the role but again, she kind of fits the whole 60s aesthetic they're going with, of this kind of 
Charlie's Angels kind of ridiculous woman in, you know, like a cape and knee-high boots and then just a very skimpy outfit, etc. So it kind of fits that vibe, but it wasn't really ideal for going forward with the character. Um, I just wanted to sort of expand upon, like, the the relationship between Charles and Eric and just in general, like, Charles's, like, role within this film because I think my favourite scene or, like, sort of part within the film is the training montage. Like, I love how, like, Charles is telling each team member precisely what they need to hear so they can reach their full potential and for me it's the moment between him and eric you know when he first holds the gun he's like yeah come on do it do it he's like i can't do it and he says well if you know you can do it then you're not challenging yourself and then when he asks him to move the satellite dish and then that moment is so emotional because he can't do it and then xavier's like i'm just gonna look he brings him back that memory of his mother and then the acting in michael fassbender's face that you see the raw emotion coming in and then obviously it turns into that meme that everybody like is sharing now of like, this is me explaining something. But, uh, <laughs> but it's such a powerful emotional moment as he moves the satellite. And then that, that smile on Eric's face, like that big, you know, <laughs> um, iconic Fassbender smile really comes through. And it's just so, so powerful and probably my favorite part of the film. Yeah, it's a really great element that they focused on with J- James McAvoy's Xavier is that idea of finding what is special about that character and that person's powers and him sort of finding the endearing elements of them, him latching onto them, um, which I thought was was really effective. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed all of the moments that, uh, that the X-Men had with that, um, especially Banshee where they literally just throw him off a satellite dish. Uh, and expect him to fly. Although I found it weird watching, uh, watching it because for a while I forgot um, uh, the other characters that Caleb Landry Jones has played. So I was just like, where have I seen him before? And then when I went back and realized which films I recognized him from, I was like, oh, well, he had a he definitely had a great career after this. So fair play to him. Uh, for those who he was uh, he was the racist son in Get Out. Uh, and he was also, oh, yeah. and he was also the jun- he was also the junior detect, uh, junior like police cop in Free Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh. So I was like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> like, so you've gone from playing, playing Banshee. Like, he already. I was just like, okay, like I'm glad I recognize this guy. Then just see what he's done afterwards. Just like, why have you just been typecast as just a bit of a douche? Like, what's going on? I did always appreciate that he did play this kind of because he he plays this kind of like charmer kind of guy and you know he's there with like obviously he's unsuccessful with uh, the woman he's trying to pull in the aquarium of all places um, but I, I kind of liked that that it was a bit more refreshing it was a bit different for a character who is like a redhead and sort of like skinny and everything I was like oh this is nice you know it's a nice change of pace rather than him just playing the sort of like you said, potentially douchey character or like a sort of more nerdy character. So I I appreciated that. And it was kind of the same with Havoc, I guess, in a way that he was, you know, he is a bit of a bully to sort of Beast, but he, at the same time, he was very like reserved and very quiet, which I thought was a nice sort of change of pace as well for that kind of jock kind of character. Uh, I think he's played by Lucas, Lucas Till. So I think that his powers and everything work quite well. And like you, Jake, I think that in that training sequence... I also love, because that really starts off the entire journey, which, again, 
what works i think about this trilogy is that you can tell that they've watched the previous film and not just gone oh yeah i watched the previous film but they've made notes of what the specific themes were in that and what was strong about it and continued it on into the next entry so in this film especially they have the idea of balancing your rage with uh, sincerity which is what charles brings up in that moment he says you know there's a middle ground between sincerity and rage and i think that that is a great lesson that he teaches uh, eric and yeah it's just a, a a good theme that carries on throughout this entire story because you see it in the next film and you see it in apocalypse as well uh in terms of the powers as well i do find it quite funny that at the end in the beach scene that when they have to sort of take out havoc his like disc gets taken off and he's just wandering around with his chest out like, <laughs> just like just, it looks so weird like at the end of the film he's just there with just a hole in, in his top it's like it looks so weird if, if we're gonna talk about like that final act how about that? Michael Fassbender all of a sudden goes to his native Irish accent when he's giving that speech. I know, at the right? End. <laughs> True. I suppose he wanted the passion there. Yeah, proper came through. I'm genuinely surprised he never said uh, they need to be lucky every single day. We need to be lucky once. Because, <laughs> like, that accent just came out of nowhere. It's so weird, so random. Are you FBI? No, you're not cops. Hey, what's with this Gibbs Youngster's place? That's an old cult. Well, he's fascinating. He's a pain in the ass. What, a teleporter? No, he says fast. When I know him, he wasn't so young. Young? You're just old. So you're not afraid to show your powers? Powers? What powers? What are you talking about? Is you something strange here? Nothing anybody would believe if you told them. So who are you? What do you want? We need your help, Peter. What? Break into a highly secured facility and get someone out. Prison break? That's illegal, you know. Uh, well, only if you get caught. So what's in it for me? You, your kleptomaniac, get to break into the Pentagon. How do I know I can trust you? Because we're just like you. Sure, man. It's cool. It was disgusting. So, yes, this uh, was X-Men Days of Future Past, which came out in 2014, uh, released in the USA on the 23rd of May. Uh, it is directed by Brian Singer with writers Simon Kinberg, uh, credited with the screenplay, along with Jane Goldman, uh, also on the story, along with uh, Simon Kinberg and Matthew Vaughan as well. Uh, it's based off, obviously, the characters created by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. It stars a very big cast, <laughs> some of which, uh, just to name a few, are Hugh Jackman as Logan, James McAvoy as Charles Xavier, Michael Fassbender as Eric Lencher, Jennifer Lawrence as Raven slash Mystique, and then we've got in the inclusion of some of the classic cast, you know, we've got Halle Berry as Storm, we've got Elliot Page as Kitty Pride. you've got Sean Ashmore back as Bobby slash 
Iceman. You've got some new players coming in here. You've got Omar Sai as Bishop. Uh, you get Evan Peters, as we just uh, heard, as Peter slash Quicksilver. And then, of course, you've got Magneto, who's played by Ian McKelland, the older version, and Patrick Stewart, who's playing the older version of Professor X. And you've got Nicholas Holt as the young version of Hank slash Beast. And you also got Peter Dinklage as Bolivar Trask. So, yeah, basically this story takes the whole time travel element that has been somewhat a part of the X-Men past in terms of comics, but has never really been explored in terms of the films. Uh, They sort of change things up a lot here. Similar to the Marvel films, they take the concept of the comic book storyline, but very much adapt it for their own films and their cinematic universe so very much being a very light adaptation of days of future past Uh, so it sees that the x-men are in a kind of post-apocalyptic world in which they're being hunted by the sentinels uh, and the humans in which you know the world is sort of ravaged and the mutants are on the run and almost become extinct we get a few of our classic x-men characters Uh, who have survived and their only then way to stop all of this by happening is using uh, Kitty Pride, who's got the ability to send people into the past, into their old bodies uh, to change the past so that it rewrites uh, the future essentially. So the plan is to send Wolverine because he's got uh, his healing abilities that he won't be uh, ripped to shreds as they so put it by going that far back into the past and he can change this pivotal moment within history which is when mystique killed trask uh, which then triggered the entire chain of events of them making the sentinel program so the idea is hopefully to bring charles and eric together uh, at a time which they couldn't be further apart as uh, ian mckellen <laughs> says uh to bring Mystique back into the fold and convince her not to kill Trask so it doesn't start that entire chain of events. So for me, this was, I always remember this, seeing this in the cinema. It was a massive deal because of, as we've discussed before, the original X-Men films were a big part of my childhood and so growing up as a teenager, etc., And I very much enjoyed First Class, so it was bringing those two worlds together. And because we had the Avengers come out in 2012, then you could tell a lot of studios would clamber in to try and get their own cinematic universes, their own team-up films. And really, Fox was the only one who could come along and say, yeah, we can legitimately do this without it feeling shoehorned in or rushed, because they did have a bunch of films and characters that they had already established. And yes, while... It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of the timeline. I can excuse all that for what this film gives us because it it marries the two worlds really well, I think. Obviously, they brought back Brian Singer, which we mentioned with First Class. None of this talking about either this film or Apocalypse. You know, we're going to condone the way that he works. You know, we've heard a lot of bad things about the way he acts on sets. You know, he was... he left uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and also he has some very serious allegations put against him so anything we're talking about in terms of these films now is very much in the vein of you know respecting these films as a standalone piece of art and for everyone else who is involved in the project not so much a work of Brian Singer himself and I think that that is very much the case here because it wouldn't really succeed without such a tremendous cast and without you know Simon Kimberg who I'll give a lot of credit despite 
the problems I think that he caused within Dark Phoenix, you know, I think that he does manage to make a really tight and really effective story here. And I think that they bring in the two worlds quite well because when this film was originally in production and they were talking about it, you were like, oh, I don't know, that sounds like a lot for one film. But I think that they do really make it work. I think the action scenes are really stand out. And while you said, Jake, that maybe First Class was the closest to the X-Men, in some ways this, to me, is kind of the closest as well because it's very much of that Saturday morning cartoon vibe, but also it's all purple laser beams and teleporting and and the the mutants using their powers together in a way that makes them effective as a team we see it a lot more maybe with the future stuff but also just that classic theme of you know charles versus eric their ideologies constantly clashing and i just love that idea of a future magneto is with the good guys if you will trying to to right the wrongs of his past and the past in general and without him even knowing he's become a villain to himself i just love the magneto comes along here's what's happening and in full magneto style goes like i need to take control of this and i need i see this now as an attack on our people and this is how we need to progress with it so it's just fascinating to me that Magneto as a character is almost triggering his own inclusion in the past and almost undoing everything that the the future Magneto is trying to do. He's like ruining everything for them. And that's what was so great about the ending of this film. It's very much like X2, that kind of like, right, we stopped the humans now. Oh, but Magneto has come in and ruined everything by taking over the entire situation. Uh, which I think works really well. So the future stuff works for me really well. The action is amazing. I think the Sentinels, I think that they brought those in really effectively as well. I think that they changed them up enough from the comics and the cartoons to be quite fresh and quite new. And I think that all of the characters and the performances are really great within this. I think a lot of people make the mistake of saying that Hugh Jackman or Wolverine is like the main character in this film. And I've never felt that. I think that he's more like the guide to the audience within this. And it very much is Charles, Mystique and Eric's story. And Charles especially takes like a big main role within this film. And Wolverine doesn't really have any major cause and effect to the plot apart from just like helping to to change the past. But he doesn't really have like a character arc or anything like that like Charles does. So... That to me is refreshing, is that even though some people would say, oh, I guess sick of Wolverine, why is it always about Logan, etc. But I don't really feel that he steals the spotlight in this film. They just use him in a very effective way of saying, hey, this guy can heal. Let's put him in the past in which a time in which he would have been alive and he would have pretty much looked the same, etc. And obviously we get the whole bone claws and stuff like that, which is quite quite fun as well. So, yeah, and I think that they really embraced, again, the, the, the aesthetic, I think... They managed to carry over what worked with Matthew Vaughan's style and aesthetic as well and add that to the 70s element, but they also made the future stuff very standalone and very unique as well. So it was not like anything we had seen. It wasn't like Avengers. It wasn't like other superhero team-ups. So yeah, I just think that this works really well as an overall story. It's a very fun adventure. Lots of characters brought in there, but with some really dramatic moments and some great music, etc. as well. Uh, Jake, what, what what do you think? 
Yeah, I absolutely love this film. This is probably no, this is my favorite of the three by by quite a stretch as well. This is by far the superior film. Um and I remember one specific memory when this film came out because when I went to go see it in the cinema, um I remember seeing like the posters of like, you know, what films they were showing and coming soon and I remember seeing currently playing Captain America the Winter Soldier, now playing X-Men Days of Future Past and upcoming uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Well, we won't talk about that film and Guardians of the Galaxy. And I, w- I remember seeing those four posters and I was like, wow, what a world. We're finally there as like nerds that we're getting all these superhero films being made by all different movie studios as well, not just one studio. And it was at that point that I was like, wow, OK, we're ramping this up. This is here to stay. So I have that specific memory of going to see Days of Future Past. And yeah, I think... While you say that this is like true to like more true to the X-Men because of like the concept of like the wackiness and like the lasers and all that sort of uh, crazy aesthetic stuff, I completely agree with you. I do think like this is a really big, bold, like confident follow up to first class. I think more like first class is more true to the X-Men in terms of character dynamics and like the relationship between the characters. But in terms of like action, visual aesthetics and all the craziness going on with time travel, absolutely um, Days of Future Past, Future Past took that first step into that world. And then I think Apocalypse takes that further step because at the time, you know, the Fox films, they were trying to ground them in a sense, you know, in a form of reality. And I think they saw the success of the MCU and how they were balancing ground, uh, grounding stuff with heightened reality and the big spectacle. So they thought, oh, let's let's go ahead and try that. And I think they successfully, like you said, they've merged the two worlds together. Like they've got a lot of comic book inspired elements like, you know, dystopian future, time travel, big fights showcasing lots of powers. I love the opening scene where, you know, the use of the portals and all the members are like going through the different portals and stuff like that. Bishop's awesome. Like the his weapon that just kept get powered up by absolutely anything is really sick. And and for me, though, like, I think it manages to bring in the older cast from the original trilogy, but it really smartly does it because it doesn't lose focus on, like, the newer cast. And I agree with you, Dave. This is not a Logan film. This is, for me, it's a Charles film who gets the majority of screen time, I think, both new and old, and he has the most thorough arc throughout the film. Um, but for me, I think, like, the highlight has got to be Evan Peters, like, he absolutely shines in the role of Quicksilver. Like, the Pentagon high scene is probably one of my favorite moments. It's such a fun sequence. And it, it ends with, like, the standout moment of the film as he does, like, the slow motion thing while he's listening to, uh, what song was it? Um, Time in a Bottle. It's just such a joyous, exciting scene as he's like, you know, trying out the different food, poking the guns in the people's faces. It's just so, so good. And I found out as well that they actually recorded that. Like the live action stuff was recorded in 3,200 frames per second. So it was moving, all the live action stuff, just moving extremely slowly. So I really like that sort of use of filmmaking there. And um, again... As I said, like with First Class, my favorite scene is Charles and Eric, you know, reuniting. And that scene when they're on the plane and they're having that game of chess. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And Eric is trying to, you know, bring Charles out and say what's going on. And they have that big discussion. He's like, you left me and all this sort of thing. Like, it was absolutely emotional. And I think we'll get into Apocalypse later. But 
what's great about First Class and the Days of Future Past is the connection between Eric and Charles, which I think sort of they lose a bit in Apocalypse. Um, so that's why it was really nice to see that here front and center again. And as well, like, I got to talk about the music because the opening sequence, like it just took me back to my childhood of, you know, Brian Signer's sort of opening style is going through, you know, that, you know, the wires and the like the membrane of the of the brain and stuff like all this sort of cool stuff with the music of John Ottman, that classic X-Men theme. And seeing that in motion, it just sort of took me back to my childhood. I was like, yeah, the X-Men sort of thing. Uh, and it's also just one of my favorite like musical uh, superhero themes is that John Ottman X-Men theme. Dun, 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 dun. It's just so good and gets me pumped every time I watch one of those films when that theme comes on. So, yeah, this is a, a stunning film. All the performances are great. I do. The Sentinels are cool. Like as a fan of like the X-Men animated series, it was cool to see them in there. I will say, though, I wasn't too keen on the design of like the future Sentinels, the ones that like morph and do all that sort of stuff. Did like I love the look of the 70 ones, the 70s ones, like the more sort of robotic style, and they got, like, the fans on their chest and stuff like that, so that was really cool. But I wasn't too sure on the futuristic ones. Don't know. They looked kind of weird to me. Uh, but, yeah, I top marks for this film. I have very little criticism to say. I also have to agree. I think it's a great film. Um, trying to think what I can say that hasn't actually been covered by you two motor mouths. Um, <laughs> one thing... Uh, one thing I'm curious to have people's opinions on, um, which is basically about the inclusion of the uh, of the older cast, because um, I did see a video that basically um, did like essentially a rewrite of the film in a way that they would have liked to have seen the film go. Because um, as much as it is good to see the future cast, and they obviously don't overpower what is meant to be like the main aspect of the story, which is basically trying uh, trying to sort out the situation in the past. Um, the the video uh, the video creator did feel that the future cast didn't really have like an awful lot to do apart from just basically exist in a situation where essentially they only exist to basically buy time and they don't necessarily have a lot to do of uh, of their own accord. Is basically we just see them trying to like fight and survive, um, which I can see to I can see that perspective to a certain extent i'm just curious as to what you guys sort of think about that idea that is one of my criticisms is maybe just that you don't get quite enough of the future aspects but at the same time it's kind of one of those that you don't want too much of a good thing because i i really love the look of that and i because they they place it in this like singular location they kind of create the story in which it doesn't really give them scope to go anywhere else with it maybe it would have been nice to have some more of like them helping other mutants or them just discussing different elements of what has happened to them over the years but you know we also saw with the road cut that then that can't that doesn't work overly well at the same time so i think that like i really love that visually like the the like i saw tibetan is it like yeah, they're in China, aren't they? I think I swear that because you see the like the Great Wall. I think they pass like yeah. Yeah, so that temple that they have with like the multicolored bottles and stuff, I think makes for a stunning location. So it works really well when you see Charles meet past Charles. You have that gorgeous scene. You have that beautiful piece of music, uh, which is called Hope from John Ottman as well. So not only does he have that fantastic X Men opening, but he also brings in like great musical moments like Hope and the music that plays during that opening so and but i also appreciate that 
the future stuff just adds to the tension and to this idea of like we're constantly on the run and we've only just arrived here and they've already found us again it kind of brings in the excitement and anticipation i had from the opening which i like jake think is i absolutely love that opening and i think that the action beats and the visuals you see within that are just so great and so striking i think that it it just makes me forgive it because i'm also enjoying the stuff in the past so much as well i think because the past has also got a lot of great action moments going on as well which you wouldn't think but because you've got you haven't got the kind of crazy sci-fi stuff but you've got magneto lifting an entire stadium for god's sake and you've got all the stuff with with the the previous sentinels and him taking control of them and all the you know the president and the white house all of that is still really fun so i think that that bouncing back and forth does really work and it, it kind of just works for me for in the t- the element of like we need to buy ourselves time it just adds to that tension and to that post-apocalyptic feel of like we're without hope um so i think in some ways if they had stretched that out too much it kind of would have lost some of the some of the great qualities of what makes that story so dynamic and so fast-paced I, th- I think all I can suggest then is, because I'm not going to explain it because it was a very detailed sort of rewrite video, but if you can go at some point, go and watch the Just Right video on rewriting Days of Future Past um, to see what he thinks the film should have, could have looked like, um, just to have an idea. Because I don't think it's a, because uh, it's, I'll just say up front now, it's not a case of uh, stretching out what we get from the future stuff. It is changing it so that the relationship that the X-Men actually have in that story makes them more proactive. Uh, but you'd have to watch the video in order to understand exactly what I mean. If there's one criticism I would say that's film is that because you are dealing with time travel and because you're 10 years after the last film, there seems to be a lot of exposition at times like there's there was times where there's just spouting information about what's happened and i'm just like okay okay that person's been doing this and this person's been doing that uh so i feel at times that it loses that sort of feeling of direct sequel if you know what i mean like it, unlike the original trilogy which each one literally followed upon the story and the themes as they went along within a short amount of time this one is 10 years and then again 10 years between all of them it's hard to like really connect all the character arcs because so much has changed in their lives especially that we find out that magneto is in prison for supposedly attempting to kill jfk which i actually found out that matthew vaughn was keen to stay on to do the x-men franchise like he after first class he had he like sort of penned out two more movies that he was going to make a trilogy and like he actually wanted to um make a sequel still within the 60s like he wanted to incorporate jfk's assassination the civil rights movement vietnam war so reading upon this what he had planned i would have been really interested to see what matthew vaughn would have done had he stayed on but for for whatever reason it didn't work and he left on to do the kingsman films so it definitely felt like there was a film missing in between this and days of future past because Obviously, we find out so many facets, like how many of the original mutants died in horrific circumstances and apparently were experimented on to such a degree that Charles gives gives up on on his dreams and just suppresses his powers and just basically drinks all day. Like, that's just a lot of characterization they're expecting us to buy into straight uh, straight away. 
honestly, I'm surprised this was never... Because if you look at it in, like, the order of, like, the actual uh, trilogy, well, for a while trilogy that we get, it's surprising that this wasn't, like, the culmination. Like, the fact that this is the second film in the trilogy just seems a bit bizarre. Because obviously if they just go, okay, so the first film is setting things up, the second film is completely changing every way <laughs> that we view an entire series of yeah. films. The third the third one's a sequel. Um, like, it it struck me as odd as the sort of placement of that, but at the same at the same time, given I don't know, I, at that time I wasn't really following up for the oh yeah, what film are we getting next? Um, to the point I was just like, oh cool, we got this, and then when it was like Apocalypse is announced, it's like oh, yeah, fine, whatever. But I think I think James McAvoy does a really good job of selling it though through his performance. Though I think once again James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender kill it in the roles, but especially James McAvoy because it is his story. And also the the best use of the f bomb ever. <laughs> that no, see that annoys me because they get the quote wrong. So when he's just like, "I remember you. We approached you in a bar. So I'm going to tell you what I what you told me all those years ago," and then he just says, "F off." I, I every time I just go, "I think you'll find what I said was go f yourself." <laughs> I'm just like. Come on. Exactly. I was giving them credit earlier for always watching the previous film and saying they're like carrying on the themes and stuff. But there, I was like, but seriously, guys, did you not just like look at the <laughs> But scene? they didn't watch the film that they were in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you also get a lot of like, because there are so many people in this film, like I find, you know, I do feel sorry for the guy who plays like Colossus, for example. I think the only line he has is just going mystique. <laughs> and like, that's all he says. And I'm pretty sure... There's another character in there which I'm like, does he say anything at all? Like, I don't think he says like sing- like a, a single line. Is it that fire? The fire guy, uh, Sunspot. No, he does say like one or two things, I think. But um, yeah, there was another character which I was like, I'm not sure if they say anything during this this film. Colossus gets his due though. Like, he gets a pretty sweet deal in the in coming up. Yeah, like I said, I I really love like. Like Jake said, I love the opening. I think that that I I dig the Sentinel look in that because again, it made it very futuristic, and I love how they sold it at the beginning, showing one is being surrounded by ice, one's being surrounded by fire, and they immediately sell you on this idea of they adapt and they learn your powers. So then showing the other uses the fire to overcome the ice, and the other uses the ice to overcome the fire. I just think that that is just perfect. I love that, and. Yeah, I just, the Blink, that I just dig that power so much. I want to see Blink turn up in another X-Men film again because she is so cool, just the way they use it, just constantly making portals and, like, lasers coming through different places. Colossus getting that moment where he gets to dive down through one. It's so awesome. And like you, Jake, as well, I think Bishop is really cool. I think he really makes sense within that. And I really like Omar Sy as him. I would love to see Omar Sy come back as Bishop, to be honest, because I think the... I really like him as an actor anyway. Uh, but yeah, I think that he, he really works well with within within the X-Men sort of universe. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I really liked, like I said, all the music within it, all the like cinematic moments. Also the costumes. I just have to quick mention to Magneto's costume. I think that is the best Magneto costume in any of the films, to be honest. I know that everyone would, would always love to see the sort of pink and red that we kind of see a bit at the end of First Class, but it does look a bit goofy. But the Days of Future Past one, I, I would wear that. That looks so cool. I love his helmet. It just looks so classy. And to me, just to finally talk uh, about Charles and Magneto, to me, after First Class, I was like, yeah, Michael Fassbender is Magneto. Like, he perfectly replicates 
Ian McKellen when he isn't doing like an Irish accent, but he he gets it. And like, I can see him becoming Magneto perfectly. And especially the fact that you get to see them both in the same film. It wasn't until this film that I was really sold on McAvoy as Patrick Stewart. I was sold on him as Xavier. But when you get that crossover of the characters and their meeting, again, while you don't so see it physically as much as you do with Fassbender and not so much in the way that they speak and act, he just embodies so much about the character that the sort of magic thing that happened at the end of this film when I first saw it in the mo- in the cinema, and this is why this was such a great cinematic experience to me because of all the, the amazing action sequences, but that moment where uh logan is there at the end and he walks up to xavier and he says oh you know you're back or you know something like that i just was like overwhelmed like oh my god that is james mcavoy like in patrick stewart's body i don't know what it was about that moment but the the story and the emotion of it had all built me up to be like fully like that is james mcavoy in xavier's body is something about patrick stewart's performance and the way that the story led you up to that moment that i fully believed that that was the same guy and that Patrick Stewart was channeling James McAvoy's Xavier. I just thought it was amazing. Since I've rewatched it, I'm like, okay, maybe I was sort of caught up in the emotions of the, the moment at cinema. But still, it's just, it's amazing how they were able to achieve that through the story and through their performances. turning the keys we've lost contact with all tridents and polaris subs the air force is reporting the same thing so much faith in that tools in that machines russia china england israel india everybody's got nukes in here you can fire your arrows from the tower of babel but you can never so yes that we are now talking about x-men apocalypse which was released in 27th of may 2016 in united states brian singer once again returns to direct and once again simon kinberg returns to write it most of the main cast all return james vacavoy is 
Professor Charles Xavier, Michael Fassbender as Magneto, Jennifer Lawrence as Raven, Nicholas Holt as Hank McCoy. But we also get the main villain, N. Sabanor, also known as Apocalypse, played by Oscar Isaac. And we also get the return of Rose Byrne as Moira McTaggart. But wait, there's more. We also get introduced to the new generation of X-Men as Sophie Turner comes in to play Jean Grey. Ty Sheridan comes in to play Scott Summers. Uh, Alexandra Ship comes in to play Aurora Monroe slash Storm. Ben Hardy's Angel. Olivia Munn is Cyclops. Like this cast is probably the biggest cast out of all the three films. Uh, it is definitely probably the biggest in terms of scope of all the three films. But I would say this is probably the weakest uh, or at least has the most problems out of the three films. And it's definitely a controversial film. But the the I would say this is definitely the most simplest film in terms of story compared to the other two. Basically, Apocalypse, uh, known as En Sabanor, is worshipped as a god since the dawn of civilization. Uh, we see him in ancient Egypt, and he's like the first and most powerful mutant. Uh, but basically, he gets trapped after the citizens of Egypt attempt, attempt a coup. And for 3,200 years, he has slept, in, he has slept and uh, finally he is awoken by some this terrorist group who are following En Sabanor. Um, event like Moira Mataget gets involved, the sun comes in and which resurrects him somehow. I'm not too sure how the sun and that pyramid things works. And then he basically is disrupt disheartened with the world, uh, thinking that it's all relying on machines and technology and superpowers. And he basically attempts to cleanse the world and only the strong mutants will survive and he will want so from the ashes of this world, he will build a better one. And in attempting that, he recruits Magneto, Psylocke, Angel, and who am I missing? Storm as his four horsemen. And then Charles Xavier and the X-Team all unite to try and stop him. So yeah, as I said, there's not really in terms of uh, plot the complexity of it. But at the same time, they're throwing a lot in this movie that causes a bit of unevenness, I think. Although, even though this film is probably the most critiqued out of these three films, I will say that I think this film gets a bad rap. Like, basing this film around the villain Apocalypse was not only a great choice, but one of the most unabashedly comic book comic booky things they could have done like days of future past as i said was that first step into like the visual aspect of doing all these crazy things and i think when you bring in a villain like apocalypse you're really embracing the i don't know the the comic book roots sort of like pop uh, pulp type of serialized storytelling villains who are like ha, 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 sort of thing you know i'm gonna take over the world so Within that, people had a lot of criticisms, but I actually really enjoyed that. I felt as if X-Men by this point was due for a big comic book style end of the world movie. And I thought Apocalypse was the perfect villain to do that. Like, it doesn't try to reinvent the superhero movie. It just simply takes the formula, follows it to the letter, and it lets the results speak for itself. Like... At times, it really feels like several episodes of the 90s animated show come to life, in my opinion. There's a lot of destruction, devastation. It's over the top, excessive at times, but it's also really appropriate 
uh, for the character of Apocalypse. And even though the actor himself, Oscar Isaac, may not have had the best of time playing this uh, character, I will say I really appreciate Oscar Isaac's performance in this the his voice that he's doing like machines you know and how he changes in tone and all that sort of stuff i found him intimidating but also charming like his use of basically every power how he can enhance humans i one of my favorite scenes is when he's talking to magneto and Auschwitz, and he's like feel the metal in the ground really uh, uh unlocking magneto's true potential so yeah, what do you guys think of this film? Because I know like this is one of the most criticised X-Men films out there. So I will say that when I first saw it, I remember it not having much of an impact apart from like a handful of scenes. I think you're right, there's, there's definitely something about it which, um, in terms of comparing to like the other films in the trilogies thus far, it definitely has like a feeling of standardness about it. So I there were just elements of it that I didn't necessarily get into um on rewatch literally this afternoon um it's better than i remembered it i there was a lot i appreciated about it i think obviously the main thing that i remembered in both viewings uh was the story they did with magneto even if i am ever so slightly confused about how necessarily that sort of story would have come up because correct me if i'm wrong i don't think his wife was a mutant no i don't think so no yeah which to me i was a bit like that's what I would have liked to have seen with him instead of instead of just randomly giving him a family just to kill them again. Uh, just actually see what it is about humanity he was willing to be like, you know, actually, there's something here. Whether or not it was something because of it, because obviously being back in Poland, uh, having closer ties to like his heritage. And we know how much um, his heritage meant to him, even to the point that like everything he believed about mutants uh, and the war to be true in the first film, he was still willing to kill Shaw because he killed his mother, uh, who presumably wasn't a uh, mutant, but he does care about that. Um, and I just remember like that element of the story being like quite heartbreaking. Um, I basically forgot that Moira was in this film. I'm not gonna <laughs> like that's how very little she seemed she seemed to have done. Uh, apart from just obviously investigating, I completely forgot she was there. So when she popped up in my rewatch, I was like, oh, hey, Rose Burns back. Um, that's cool. Um, probably the, uh, the hindsight of watching it directly after first class as well, I was able to just sort of carry that through. Um, I thought like, uh, I thought like the new cast, uh, were quite fun, you know, basically just seeing like this slow interaction, um, and you get some conversa- uh some conversations like you had with like the orig- uh, original mutants so you have scott uh you have scott with the uh with the target and basically getting him used to the uh, the eyesight and scenes like that uh which were quite uh which were quite cool yeah i think i think there's just um a lot of it which is just like comp it, it, i think it's competently made but like there weren't that many scenes that sort of like cried out to me it's like oh my god this is over overwhelmingly uh overwhelmingly powerful even just like uh scenes of like magneto sort of rip, uh ripping things uh out of the earth and basically just completely just destroying destroying the sort of makeup of the globe um i think it was cool up until the point and then a lot of it just looked like a sort of standard destruction there wasn't anything that screamed out like oh yeah this is this is more world shattering than like anything we're sort of used to. And I think even they sort of buy into this idea of sort of that element as well, because they just go for, uh, because they also have 
another Quicksilver scene, which, while good, obviously doesn't stand anywhere as near as strong as the first scene from Days of Future Past. Um, whether it's just because the song they choose isn't as good, because it's Sweet Dreams, um, or the fact that it's just long, uh, it's just longer, and also just has the bittersweet ending of just like, oh yeah, Havoc's, Havoc's now gone, just out of nowhere. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. But yeah, no, I, there's definitely a lot, uh, a lot to enjoy with this, and obviously this is uh, this film is pivotal because this is where James McAvoy. Uh, finally dons the the bald head role of Charles Xavier um uh, which is also quite pivotal there but yeah that's sort of like my sort of stance on the film yeah I think that's the bittersweet thing about this is that you get to the end with you have you know bald Charles but also I think for me it encapsulated so much of what that film was trying to do it, it very much is the most Saturday morning cartoon of all of the X-Men films potentially uh, which I really enjoy and I think at the same time it's kind of the same criticisms that have been thrown at things like the kaiju films in which people are just saying oh it's just this big dumb CGI fest but at the same time for something like Godzilla King of the Monsters I always said that that was taking on very much well a lot of those modern Godzilla films are taking on the kind of disaster film aesthetics and going with this end of the world showing you the military and the humans that are affected and this complete and utter destruction in which it's just seen from like a grand scale kind of similar to what you might get in like you know Zack Snyder with like his Man of Steel etc rather than looking at like this individual smaller situation is this kind of battle of gods so i felt that that was an element here especially in we kind of get that from that scene with apocalypse because when i was watching it i was kind of thinking oh i don't know is is this quite working it's a bit gimmicky there's a lot of story threads going on i'm not really i'm not sure if i'm digging the kind of apocalypse stuff but once i saw that scene i was like right i get it now this is more like you know they're trying to be more like a disaster film because he literally is, you know, he's taking all the rockets up and he's sort of commentating on the way that humanity has progressed and he wants to reshape it. And we get that with the pulling the metal out of the ground as well, which I think I agree with Craig. I think it's quite cool as a idea. I wasn't too fussed on the idea of doing it in Auschwitz. Something about that just morally was a bit cloudy for me i was a bit like uh, i don't know about this it's like i i kind of like that for the the beauty of the the what happened to magneto and the gates being bent etc i understand story-wise I was say, why they're it there. makes sense narratively why apocalypse would choose that place to manipulate magneto do you know what yeah I mean? like, i'm just surprised that the people in charge of the film were like yeah, I don't know if this is morally right to do to take this place of this great tragedy and just literally rip it all apart. <laughs> you know, just historically mm, okay. that place is quite, you know, a very, you know, okay, precious kind mean, of yeah. tragic it's, place. It is a, it's a contentious issue, but there are, I mean, there's a lot of situations where a lot of people advocate for the destruction of of places like that, not necessarily that place. Uh, but some people do say Sans is sort of like a symbol of power for those sort of hatred anyway. So uh, it, eh, it might just be the issue. idea of but, them being there in the first place. It's that kind of idea of taking a selfie as Auschwitz. I'm always just a bit like it just makes me a bit uneasy when they sort of place these storylines there. <laughs> also, let's be fair. Films have decided to destroy a lot more insensitive things than uh, than that. So 
at least there was thematic relevance for them actually being there anyway, right? Especially considering when it happens in the story, uh, as opposed to insert many disaster film uh, where they just randomly destroy places because lol destruction. So I I didn't I I I definitely agree there was something you have to think about whether or not it's okay to do this, but I didn't come out of the end going like. Like, yeah, they shouldn't have done it. I think for the sake of the story, it made sense. The bittersweet element for me is also the fact that you, at the end, see, like, oh, these are the more traditional-looking X-Men, like the 90s kind of looks. You see Ty Sheridan, you see Storm, you see Nightcrawler. So in their traditional costumes, etc., they look like the X-Men. They've got their individual looks. They're not in these just kind of boring pilot suits that they have throughout this film. And it just was then weird that then they went, okay, let's ignore all that in the next film and just went with uniform again and went very, for a very specific X-Men look from a very completely different storyline to the Dark Phoenix storyline. So, yeah, it, it just that to me ended like, oh, my God, yes, they're really embracing now the X-Men. And it's just weird that they didn't carry that on. That's what I mean. I thought it ended perfectly, even though the timeline had changed because of Days of Future Past, I still, in a way, thought it thematically, like, um, led up perfectly to the first X-Men film, you could say. Maybe not with the addition of Nightcrawler, but, you know, Jean Grey, Storm, Cyclops, and all of that. I was like, great, now we, you can watch X-Men, the first one, straight after this, in a way. Although, uh, two things quickly. One, on the, on the flight suits. I love how David said, like, oh, yeah, they just basically opted for boring flight suits, when literally that is what they do. They just go, oh, this there are pilot is. suits here. Yes. Let's just chuck yeah. them on. <laughs> um, but the other thing as well, and I think this is one of the... Fe- I think this is why I didn't enjoy it the first time round um, as much, because it has that sort of um, uh, consequence issue. Because obviously this comes after Days of Future Past. And at the end of Days of Future Past, we see... Uh, the like current the sort of like up to up to time version of all the characters and it's just like does it then rob any films that come after of the tension of are they going to make it out of these situations because we know that all of these characters are okay which I think given that I didn't re-watch Days of Future Past right before this I think that sort of weakened that sort of stance for me because I was able to just enjoy it for like the actual consequences it it laid out in front of me instead of thinking about it in the in the realm of well what does any of this actually matter because we know we know that everything's gonna be fine uh obviously i think dark phoenix does a couple of things to sort of try to reintroduce consequences by messing with some of that ending a little bit makes it even more confusing then the famke jansen is in that end scene so it's like (laughs) yeah but i i think as well like I think, like, the original trilogy, in a way, like, whatever you think of Last Stand, it still follows through on what the first two did. Like, that is a cohesive trilogy. Yeah. I think with this these set of three films, it's not as cohesive. I think that you can still watch them as a trilogy, but you can easily watch them as, like, standalone X-Men films and enjoy them for yeah. what they are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that that's where, like you, Jake, is that I give this film a big pass because i think a lot of people are too harsh on it because i think that oscar isaac did do a good job i think it's just that they let him down in maybe just not giving him a big enough suit to make him like a big enough guy and you know maybe more of the stuff you saw when he was in charles's head and he literally turns giant etc but um just the action scenes are just so cool and fun at times the fact that you know you've got 
Psylocke there who we've never seen. So she's bringing in the purple, cool she looks X-Men incredible. energy again. So she looks great. You know, you got... Storm with the mohawk gold. Absolute yeah. gold. That As soon as I saw the trailer and saw she had the mohawk, screamed with joy. I was like, yes, because that is my Storm, one with the mohawk. Yeah, and I don't know why. It's something about that moment in which, you know, when they all team up to defeat Apocalypse again. So they... they bring in the idea of the x-men using their powers together i think she uses her lightning and you get uh cyclops's laser vision i'm like oh yeah this is really cool but when he tries to teleport away and he has that portal and you just see her like with the glowing eyes and like the hands and she's bringing down like the lightning and it stops it i don't know something about that i was just like yeah that looks so cool i just really like it and i think as the music and the soundtrack gets really like high i was gonna say like in that end sequence, like I wasn't huge on Sophie Turner as Jean Grey and Ty Sheridan as a psycho. I'm not, I think they play the parts okay, but I wasn't completely sold on them. But when we get to that final act and, you know, Jean Grey's coming out, she's walking on thin air, the big Phoenix comes out, the music swelling up. I thought that was fantastic. And it sort of upon rewatch, I was like, wow, this is actually hitting me more than I thought it did. And I thought that was a, that was a really good moment. And then, yeah, when you know we're in, we're inside Charles's head, and he's like, "I'm not alone," and then she comes out of there. I thought that was yeah. awesome, absolutely awesome. Still sticks with the weird elements of the Phoenix storyline, though. That they're like, it's within her the whole time. It's like that's not what the comic book storyline is. So we already had the paint, you know, the writing on the wall there that they were messing with that storyline again of it not being this cosmic entity, but. But yeah, especially considering it then gets contradicted in the next film. It's like it's inside her all along until she goes into space and encounters more of it. Apparently, I don't let's know. not talk about dark things. <laughs> no, I will say my my biggest criticism of this film, um, unfortunately, is Jennifer Lawrence. Like, mm, yeah. I don't know what happened. Like, I heard there was a lot of behind the scenes drama with Jennifer Lawrence not wanting to be in the makeup of Mystique as much. So they they sort of had to work a story where she's not needed in the Mystique as much. And then you had this whole thing of like, oh, I don't want to be blue anymore. I was like, well, how that makes no sense from what we just saw in Days of Future Past. But this is the problem with the 10 year gap. That's why I sort of mentioned. But um, yeah, and I also found that Jennifer Lawrence's performance was just incredibly dull. Like, it really seemed like she phoned it in, she didn't want to be there, and she was just reading the lines of the script. I really did not like her in this film at all. And I also thought, what purpose is she really playing in this film, apart from a tool to bring in Nightcrawler? Which, by the way, is an absolute delight in this film. I found him really charming. Yeah, well, similar with, like, Angel. Like, he doesn't get a great amount of screen time or, like, story, but at least, like, he has those cool moments where he has the metal wings and you see them, like, flying, like, daggers towards them. But unfortunately, he dies, but yeah. I, I think... also like the reference uh, when we meet Angel. Well, not when we meet him, but when Apocalypse meets Angel. Like, you've got Metallica, the four horsemen, playing in the background <laughs> yeah. while he's being transformed, so i got to give props to that. I will say that... Mystique did introduce me to probably who now might be my favourite mutant. Uh, just be- Not because of skills or or anything like that, but just in terms of personality, which is uh, Caliban. Just anyone who just conducts themselves in that really shady environment, but still refers to themselves as the third person. I'm just like, you are my guy. 
I yeah, I agree with Jake though that I think that Jennifer Lawrence is like does sort of stick out a bit. And I don't know. I get that they were like, oh, she's the star of the Hunger Games and everything. We got to keep her in this franchise because there was, of course, that famous poster which dodgily showed Apocalypse like strangling her. But you know, I think the idea there was that they were like, oh, look, Jennifer Lawrence in this X Men film. Come see it. Is she gonna die? All this kind of stuff. But it just felt to me like Days of Future Past would have been a nice place to leave her off. She could have gone. I like the idea of Mystique being this kind of unknown saviour. That they could have been a situation... That situation didn't have to be the eyes of the world watching. Everyone saw what she did. I think because of the chaos and everything, they could have easily understood that the mutants won the day. But you didn't have to know that it was Mystique. And it would make sense to Mystique as a character to not take credit for that. And to not be, you know, kind of being like, oh, nobody knows the truth, but I actually saved it. So I think that would have made sense to her continuing to be a villain and this kind of middle-ish character. So again, I think that was a mistake is that, again, I'm not big on the fact at the end of this, she's like the mentor and she's like teaching them how to be X-Men because I'm like, you've barely been an X-Man yourself. So it, it's, it doesn't really make sense that you're sort of introducing them in this way. But, you know, I, I think all the school stuff is fun. Like Craig said, I think the Quicksilver scene is not as good. It's more of a CGI fest, but they definitely try to level it up. And also, you know, you get the weird sidetrack with the Wolverine stuff, which is a bit of a random inclusion. Unnecessary. But, yeah. yeah. And having Stryker played by an actor from American Pie. Is <laughs> <Yeah. fun. laughs> um, who definitely doesn't look like the actor who played, you know, they have that weird morph in Days of Future Past, doesn't he, where he tries to, to look like the actor who plays him in X2. And it's just like, he's definitely shorter and got a completely different like body type than that, that man. But you, whatever. You know what? You know what this film also is severely lacking compared to the first two is more is scenes between Charles and Eric. Yeah. They are too far and few between. Like there's honestly like there's just not many engagements between them. You have that one where he's in the head, you know, when Apocalypse is like making the suit for him. And then you have the other one pretty much at the end, you know, when they're about to like start destroying the world. But that's pretty much it. And I felt that that was what was really missing in this film is that thematic element between Charles and Xavier, between, sorry, between Charles and Xavier, between Charles and Eric, like the constant relationship and chemistry between them. We didn't really get any of that in this film. And I felt that was a, a big hindrance towards it. But they did at least continue the theme of like the loss and everything that Magneto experiences. Yeah, so again, bringing from yeah. first class, they still have that tragedy element and him losing control and all of that. Mm. I think that that works quite well. So they always do Magneto pretty well, do Xavier pretty well as well. Like I said, I think they just needed to establish for me like why he was willing to basically start a relationship with a human. That's the that's still the only element of that sort of story that bothers me. Uh, one last thing, I really like the tie-in at the end after Mystique gives her all your X-Men sort of speech when Eric says, what will you do, Charles, when someone comes knocking at your door? He's like, well, I will feel a great swell of pity for whoever comes here looking for trouble. And I just love how they tied that to the end of the first X-Men film when they're playing chess. And then you get the epic like, closing of the doors on Charles. And it's just epic. I really like the, how they ended the film there. Yeah, that was great. Also funny that it happens like after the house has literally been like obliterated. So he's like, I feel sorry for anybody who comes here looking for trouble again because this place is blown up once and I'm not letting it blow up again. Well, <laughs> is, you they, didn't they do a very a, good job of protecting them last time, did you, John? Well, they make a joke about that in Deadpool. What, the house that gets blown up every couple of years? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
I mean, the, the fact that the first time the house is destroyed is they destroyed it themselves accidentally. Must have just been the beacon for everyone else to be like, oh, the house can be destroyed. Come on, lads. Yeah. So I, I think that this film, like, it showed promise to potentially go forward into, you know, new and interesting ways, which we know we didn't. But, you know, we, we within the confines of this film itself, it still gives us a lot of promise, a lot of cool costumes, great music again fantastic visuals and great performances but there are lost story and script elements which just don't quite work so i think and you know, a good villain damn it a yeah, good villain <laughs> it's, it's it's understandable that this is the weakest of the three but i still don't think it deserves like you know where people say oh it's one of the worst comic book movies etc it, it's not that bad but i digress so you know we've talked all about the trilogy and you know this week we're not going to be talking about the movie vault just yet because we want to get some more expertise on that first uh, which we'll find out in today's Endgame. We're in the Endgame now. It's so annoying. Endgame time. Jake. Hello. I have to confess, I don't think David's a match for you this week. Okay. <laughs> so instead, what we've decided to do is we found you a worthy opponent for this Endgame. May I present to you self-proclaimed comic guru someone you yourself have mentioned on this podcast as having more information about aspects of the X-Men universe than yourselves a co-host of Capes, Cowls and Masks <laughs> the anticipation <laughs> may I introduce Tom Gapper hello you have your music Tom love it Appreciate it. Somehow I knew he was going to make an appearance today. <laughs> and I've brought all of the X-Men with me, as you can see. The question is, will that help in this endgame? <laughs> I'm a guess not, because the ac- the actual endgame is not about X-Men. Uh, sorry to tell you. <laughs> so, Tom, welcome. Have, good to have you. Uh, good to be here. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It'll be, a f- no be fun to spank Jake's ass. Very sneaky. Very, very <laughs> sneaky, I will say. So this is part of a new project we're trying, which is basically the Challenger series. So uh, from time to time, we may experiment with having a guest on purely for endgame purposes, just to see uh, how a fresh mind coming into this can perform against someone who has just been talking so much uh, throughout the episode already. So how do you fancy your chances, Jake? Not good, probably. But, but we'll see. We'll see what the end game is. If you're saying it's not about the X Men, then we'll see. Right. Okay. So end game time. So this is a game I've lovingly called the Generation Game. Oh wait, crap. Uh, that's trademarked. Okay. Not right. That's not what the end game <laughs> is called. Right. That the end game is not called the Generation Game, but it, it's basically like that. Whatever. Anyway. What this endgame is, is that obviously one of the pivotal things that the new X-Men trilogy uh, was able to do was basically the successful recasting of younger versions of characters that we've already have already known. However, this is not a this is not a new phenomenon that the X-Men started, nor is it something that they hold exclusively. There are many uh, many situations where people have been recast as older or younger versions of characters. I want to see how well you can remember who plays those characters. So what will happen is I'm going to give you the name of an actor and I want you to try and, uh, and try and guess or give me the name of the actor who plays either the younger or the older older version of the same character, whether that be in the same film or a different film. 
So we'll do a quick experiment. If I were to give you the name Alec McGuinness, you would say to me... Obi-Wan Kenobi. Or Ewan McGregor. No, that's the character. Ewan McGregor, yeah. So uh, I don't need the character that they play. I just need need the other actor who plays their aged counterpart. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, that makes sense now. Okay, cool. cool. The way this is going to work is we're going to use my favorite buzzer site. So um, let's do this. So a reminder, I don't want the character. I don't want the film. I just want the other actor. So if I were to say to you, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's. Ooh, they've fallen at the first hurdle. Jake. Bruce Willis. Correct. Clever, clever. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Bruce Willis, because they both play the same character, Joe, in the film Looper. Uh... A film a film, uh, a film, where people are sent back in time to be assassinated. I think I can be forgiven for forgetting that film. It's a great film. So you can't you can't be forgiven. <laughs> okay. Number two. Tommy Lee Jones. David, do you know this? I think so. Oh cool. I uh, I know the film now, I just don't know the actor's name. <laughs> oh. I can't even think of the film. Um Would it help if I said it's a uh, it's a trilogy? No, I know I know yeah. who it is. I'm just trying to remember the actor's name. Ah, he's inevitable. Ah, Josh Brolin, Men in Black Three. I was like, "What's what's a vague clue I could give?" (laughs) They both play Agent K at different uh, at different points of time, but yeah, it is indeed Josh Brolin. (laughs) Now we go for Robert De Niro. It's not as Quickfire, as I was mm, imagining. No, this that one. To be. I'm trying to. <laughs> he's got so many movies, so that's why it's a bit hard. <laughs> um, this is possibly like the the most famous example of this. I don't know if I've got this one. No, no. I'm really drawing a blank yeah. completely. Uh, I can't even p- place the film. I bet. I bet it's going to be completely obvious once you say it. Um, Four, three, two. One. Yeah. Okay, that's gone. I was looking for Marlon Brando, the Godfather series. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Okay, number four. I think this is probably going to be slightly more up your guy's street. <laughs> Alden Ehrenreich. That is Jake. Harrison Ford. Correct. They are both the actors who play Han Solo from Star Wars. I'm not going to lie, I barely understood the name you said. <laughs> I feel bad now, because this next one is one of the ones I considered hard. Um, and I Bring will say on. that this is a child actress. Right? Okay. Uh, Lily Aspel. Yeah, this is a hard one. Um, if this is what I think it is, then I, the, the person who would be, I'm like, how would you know that? <laughs> Hence why it's one of the harder ones. <laughs> But also, this is comic book, so I would I would have thought there's more of a chance. Oh, okay. That's not what I was thinking, then. Okay, cool. Okay, I think I might know. It's that I know the actress's name, but I just can't place where 
I can't even like I can't even imagine what she I'm looks like. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this person my talking about these films. <laughs> I'm just I'm just gonna guess is Zoe Saldana. It is not Zoe Saldana. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so Jake, you have a chance. You said it's from a comic book film, yeah? Yep. Jake? Is it Jennifer Lawrence? It's not Jennifer Lawrence. I was thinking the younger Mystique in First Class. Uh, not a bad guess. Uh, I was looking for Gal Gadot because uh, they're both oh, Diana in the Wonder uh, Woman films. Fair enough. Okay, number six. If I say to you, Chris Pine. Steve Trevor. No, there are few rounds on where you got that wrong. One, you didn't buzz. Two, that was the character. I want to answer. <laughs> Jake? William Shatner. It is William Shatner. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was like, surely you wouldn't go with the child actor from Star Trek. <laughs> that would just be cruel. Number six. Sorry, number seven, even. Mila Kunis. I've only seen her in like two things. Two very bad things. I don't really know I, Mila Kunis's filmography. To I, be I will. I will say up front. I don't think this is an obvious one. That makes me feel a little better. I've, I'm just resolving to try and think who she looks like a younger version of. That's also not a bad <laughs> shout. You can just randomly shout ac- actors and actresses' names and hope there's a connection. God damn it! Who looks like Mila Kunis? Okay, that's time on that one. I was looking for Angelina Jolie because uh, they both play a character in the film Gia. Uh, never seen the film, so. I but I, I can one. kind of see. Okay, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, the next one we go for. I'm looking for. Uh, who plays the younger version of Gloria Stewart? Think Oscars. It would help if I knew who Gloria Stewart was. It'd be so much easier if I wasn't colorblind. <laughs> Think 84 years. Ah. Tom. Kate Winslet. It is Kate Winslet. Say, yeah. Yes! I got there. Uh, they are both the people who played Rose Dawson in Titanic. I am nailing this. <laughs> Well, it's nice to see Tom on the board uh, at this point. Um, <laughs> okay, we're at question number nine. Jake has four. Tom has one. Yeah. Okay. Number nine. Uh, this is the only animated film on the list, Ooh. so I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you that Ooh. one for free. Um, the child that I'm giving you is Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I think I'm. I was going to take a wild guess because I. Tom? Do not know that name. Uh, Matthew Broderick. It is Matthew Broderick. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> From what? <laughs> the Lion, Lion King. King. Oh, Lion King. <laughs> I, I, took a, I took a gamble on the fact that Craig would throw a Lion King question in <laughs> And it worked Again, out. Yeah, not bad logic. <laughs> Matthew Broderick has come out like twice, I think, for Tom. I know! In the end game session. <laughs> Clearly there's some link between me and Matthew Broderick that I'll have to explore uh, in my own time. <laughs> I think we call it the Nathan Lane. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay, we're on to number 10. Good luck. Oh, great. Vanessa Redgrave. I don't know who this actress is. Um, 
We're looking for the younger, but probably more well-known actress. Younger and more well-known. Yep, who plays the same character in this uh, literary adaptation. Oh, it's definitely not up my street, that sort of stuff. Um... Like I said, I wanted to make this quiz mixed. Yes, understandable. Um... <laughs> the X-Men aren't helping me on this one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Ooh. I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna take a, a guess. Go for and it. I think uh, the only like a big popular actress I can think of now, Margot Robbie. It is not Margot Robbie. Emma Tom? Stone. <laughs> it is not Emma Stone. So David, do you have any idea? I'll give you a hint. Yeah, it's an no. Irish name that I struggle to pronounce. Ah, now I know S- who it is. Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse Ronan. Ronan. Yeah. Yeah. They both play the same character in Atonement. Uh, okay. So, David, you have seen that film with me. We've both laughed about the typewriter scene. <laughs> okay. This one's a bit nicer, but still on the realms of literary. Okay. I'm going to give you Ian Holm. Jake? Uh, Martin Freeman. It is Martin Freeman. And they are, if one of you didn't get that one, I would be like, guys! <laughs> they, they are both Bilbo Baggins. Okay, next up we have Zachary Quinto. Leonard Top. Nimoy. It is indeed Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. Star Trek again. Boom. Okay, so I'm gonna get. I'm gonna give you a heads up about this one. Okay. These are two both well-known actors. I'm genuinely surprised that they're linked in this way. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if you know who... Uh, I don't expect you to know the film. The film's a bit random, but you might know that the actors are connected this way. I'm going to give you Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf plays the younger version of this well-liked Marvel actor. I can see the film in my head, but I just can't... Uh... I'm just going to... Is it RDJ? It is RDJ. They play the same character in A Guide to Recognising Saints. That was a complete guess, but I'll take it. (laughs) I would have gone with somebody blonde, I wouldn't have thought. (laughs) Well, out of everyone in the MCU, I was like, who looks like Shia LaBeouf the most? I was like, well, probably RDJ. Nah, see, that's why I would have gone like Chris Pratt or someone. Why? Explain yourself. Explain yourself, Dave. Yeah, they just. I don't. Know, maybe I'm just thinking too much of even Steven's <laughs> days or something. <laughs> okay. Next up, we have. I pray I've got this right, David. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Michael Gambon. Oh. F- <gasps> Jude Law. It is indeed Jude Law. Mm. Ah shit! They yeah. Go- they both play Dumbledore. Dumbledore yeah. in the Harry Potter universe. So Fantastic Beasts and the Crimes of Grindelwald. Yeah, unfortunately. Yep, and now there's a new one with Mads Mikkelsen replacing Johnny Depp. Yep. So that should be something. Okay, and now on to uh, now on to the final question, and the final one I'm giving you is Matthew Perry. Oh, ah. Shit. <laughs> ah! Zac Efron. It's Zac Efron. Yeah. 
in the film 17 again. Yeah. So, we come to the end of the end game. And with a respectable four points to seven, Jake is the winner. Congratulations, Jake. And I'm going to greet you with the song of the people of victory, which is me filibustering until I can... Well, that was a well-deserved victory, Jake, but uh, I feel like I made you work for it in the end, but just a little too late. Like Icarus, I flew too close to the sun. Tom was just saved by those teenage heartthrobs of <laughs> Martin Broderick and Zac Efron. Apparently I have a type, who knew? Someone <laughs> tell my fiancé. So yeah, well done, Jake. And uh, yeah, we brought uh, Tom in. And Tom, we have specifically delayed the movie vault because you know we thought we wanted to get your opinion as well today because we're talking about the X-Men Beginnings trilogy uh, as to what should go into our movie vault, if at all any films, when we're talking about X-Men First Class Days of Future Past and Apocalypse. Should any of these films go in the movie vault? I think previously, was it just X-Men and X2, I think we put in from the original trilogy? It may have only been X2. Yeah, I put in X2 when I was last on, so yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's just just X2 is the, the film within the movie vault, so whether any other X-Men films deserve to go in there? I feel like Days of Future Past deserves to go in there. I think it was a stellar film bringing together two generations of X-Men. Um, and it was, I had my doubts about it initially, um, but watching it, I was completely blown away. And it, it was like, I'd say it's almost as good as X2 in some ways. The other two films, I have too many problems with to send them to the vault. Yeah, I concur with Tom. I think Days of Future Bass should be the one that goes in. Days of Future Pass. Yeah, I, Fast. I agree. My God. I think I think <laughs> <laughs> I think out of the newest ones, it is the most successful. I mean, I would I would heavily argue that I think, given all of the circumstances, it was under first class, also deserves to go in. I I would want to agree with you if they hadn't <laughs> yeah. killed off Darwin. <laughs> to me, to me, we, that okay. is unforgivable on so many levels. Not least of all, he was like the only black guy in the film. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so I mean, that's not great. Um, and like, obviously, I understand, I understand uh, why it should have been impossible for Darwin to die in that way. Um, if he's meant to adapt to any situation, why could he have not just converted himself into pure energy to also just be energy yeah. and therefore not be blown up? But I don't know, I think that given it had the, had the task of introducing us to a brand brand new uh professor s a brand new mag uh brand new magneto and just this it, it, entire con uh entire concept within like the cuban missile crisis and just the 60s vibe being able to like marry all of those elements together while also having to have done it within the most arduous of production uh production issues i think that it represents so much of what we would be looking for films to sort of achieve uh, whilst also in like unideal situations. I think it's quite commendable for that. Uh, so I, that's my argument for why I think it should also... it should. I'm not saying Days of Future Past shouldn't go in. That obviously should. I'm saying it should go in as well. Yeah, there's a lot of people who do mention it a lot as one of the underrated comic book movies. Also, I think from what Craig said is 
it reminded me of the point I was saying about how Days of Future Past succeeds thanks to a lot of the things that they build up within First Class. So that I don't think that the Magneto and Charles relationship would be half as strong. Whereas I think something like X2, if you were to talk about X-Men films, I think that can stand alone. You don't have to have really seen the first film. Whereas I think the Days of Future Past does benefit a lot from from First Class as well in terms of building up Mystique, Charles and Eric. So, hmm. I know, I, I'll say that just based on how they handled Magneto and Professor X in First Class, especially with the culmination of it, um, I and in light of Craig's argument, I will happily allow it into the vault alongside Days of Futures Past. Um, although it should be with an asterisk <laughs> next to it, the Darwin shouldn't have died. <laughs> well, there's a lot of problems within it as well, like you said, you know, in terms of performances and how many mutants we got and things like with the timeline but i think but i think as we said just as a film it's enjoyable it it gets the tone right craig said as well that they went through a lot of production problems and came out of it actually quite well and yeah i think that they handle quite a lot of stuff really well and it also gets you used to the kind of decades aspect that they go with from from there onwards so yeah i'm willing to say that you know if we're talking about x-men films as a whole out of the six, then to say that X2, First Class, and Days of the Future Past are the, the, the top three, I think is like a pretty fair summary. So, yeah, I, I would say Into the Vault goes X-Men, First Class, and Days of the Future Past, I would say. Sorry, Jake, you're outvoted. You just don't get it, man. He doesn't get it, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> let's move on to uh, where the people can find us. So, uh, yeah, thank you guys for joining us, especially Tom in his uh, surprise uh, appearance there at the end doing the whole end cameo as you do with uh, comic book movies <laughs> so uh jake uh, where, where can we find uh, yourself and capes cows and mass uh yeah you can find me on twitter at sweaty jake and you can also find me on letterbox at jake hart that's h-r-t and as for the podcast i do capes cows and masks we're on wherever you get podcasts from so apple spotify google whatever Every week we're chatting about news, discussions about superheroes, and I'm on there with Tom every week, and occasionally Dave pops his head in when he can. Uh, and we'll also be very soon doing our Loki reviews, so uh, keep up, watch out for that, because that's going to be starting very soon. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at GapperBoy, so that's G-A-P-P-E-R-B-O-I, where I've started in earnest my campaign to get the question uh, a series, because DC needs to cool it with the Batman. And yeah, as, as Dave said, you'll, you can find me on Cape Cows and Mask alongside uh, Jake every week. And uh, I'll also be doing some Loki-related stuff on the podcast in the coming uh, days or weeks. But uh, I won't talk about that quite yet. Wait till that drops. So yeah, thank you guys for joining us once again. Uh, you can catch yourselves at Well Good Movies on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, much like Capes, Cows, and Masks, you can catch us wherever you listen to your podcast. You can catch us on Apple, Spotify anchor all your favorite podcast outlets and yeah please do give us a like a share a review it does help us out massively so uh craig anything lastly from yourself some words of wisdom i think everyone needs to live their life by at some point in your life you're going to be replaced by a younger actor who's basically going to continue the part that you yourself are playing in life just accept it embrace it and think about how much hotter they could be than you and just how much they can bring to your own personal self-esteem enjoy it <laughs>
Well, yeah, thanks guys. Uh, we'll catch you in the next one. And just remember, you can fire your arrows from the Tower of Babel, but you can never strike God. Catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Charles! <laughs> <laughs> Bye. See ya. Bye-bye. Uh, do, do, do. uh, do, do, do. uh do, do, do.